You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Do you have people in your life that just kind of have it together? Like all together. Like you look at them financially and they're just together. They always have a job. They're never in debt. Seems like they can start business ventures or invest in stocks. And it just goes well for them. Or you look at their families and whatever stage of life they're in in their family, it seems like things are going well. If it's dating, if it's marriage, if it's raising kids, if it's sending them off, it just seems like everything's together. And you might not, I mean, you might know that it's not perfect, but it's better than my life. It's better than how well I have things together. Or what about those people that have it religiously together? You know, their practice is good. Their doctrines are good. It, it seems like they know the Bible. Where do they get all this knowledge, this wisdom of church tradition? And it just feels like they always have the answer and they have their lives together. Even with their relationship to God. You look at some people and it just seems like no matter what they're going through, good or bad or neutral, they just have their lives together. Well, there's two things you could feel about whenever you see people like this. And you might feel these two things separately. You might even feel them together. And one is to look at someone else and say, about yourself, I just don't have it together. My life is not together. Or you look at someone else and you say, you know, they don't really belong together with me. You know what I'm saying? So you, you might look at yourself and say, I don't have it together. I don't really belong. Do I fit with these good people on one side? Or another thought, you might look at people and say, I don't know if they belong. There's some kind of boundary where they may not fit. They may not be a part. There should be a limitation to their belonging. In this series, it's called Together. You've seen it on the digital sign. You see it everywhere. Together, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And, and this series is a, a look at our life together. And Paul's point so far in Romans comes to a crescendo in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the question that gets raised at this point is maybe not a question that immediately sounds like one that you're very interested in at all. What is God going to do with the Jews? What's he going to do with them? These people that are his chosen people, these people that are believers who are faithless, who are not coming to believe that he sent the Messiah in Jesus, what's God supposed to do with it? And this is the exception that Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. What is God supposed to do with unfaithful people? Has he ditched the Jews in favor of the new improved group of people, the Gentiles. Is that what it's all about? Now, I want to give you the answer on the front end because where we're going is lengthy. In fact, this is probably a great time to make sure that you're well seated, that you're buckled in, that you've taken in some lots of breaths, right? Lots of breaths, Donna, to get oxygen to your brain where you can really hear this. So here's the answer. God has used human disobedience as a pathway 
for everyone to receive faith, to receive God's righteousness. That's the answer. Now, that answer of God's word of bringing people together might be strange because sometimes we think God's venture is to kick more and more people out, and maybe that's what he's trying to do, to kick the Jews out now because he's got a new group of people. Well, here in this text and what we have to do today is to look at this longest letter in the New Testament. The longest letter that we have from Greece in this time. To look at this letter that Paul wrote and has his longest argument in the New Testament, the longest sustained argument from chapters 1 to chapter 11. And I'm supposed to keep you entertained for this sermon and help you to actually want to follow Jesus at the end of it. That's my task today, and that is a difficult one. But I can tell you that following Jesus, our mission here at First Christian and for Christians everywhere while it sounds easy, is very much possible. It's something that you can do. This journey of following Jesus is one that you'll find that kids loved Jesus. You'll find that adults who have a past that's chasing them down, they love Jesus and want to be around Jesus. And so I think we can jump into this task, maybe not afraid, but ready to go. So here we are. First question, are you a Jew or a Gentile? Seems like a strange way to begin, but we've got to get clear on this. Are you a Jew or a Gentile? Are you someone who's descended from Abraham? Someone who is uh, any kind of a Jew. You've been following the Torah. You're committed to the Jewish way. So you have to think, am I in that category? Is that who I am? Or am I a Gentile, which is everyone else, all the other nations? That's what it means, the nations. So have you got figured out in your mind which one you are? Nod your head. Okay, I don't see anyone shaking their head. Good, we're off and we're running. The gospel that Paul gives in Romans is a gospel that's for all. In Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, he lets us know that the righteousness of God is for all. To the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And that's simply a matter of chronology. And so, as People who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, were able to enter into a new relationship with God. And what we did last time we were together is get to kind of a, a grand swoop in chapter 8 where Paul says in verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a great gift. And down in verse 39 and 35 and 39, 35 through 39, is there anything in the world that can separate us from the love of God? And what's the answer to that? No, okay, well this makes sense. We're, we're in, we're in with God, everything's great. And then we get this strange thing that Paul says. You got your Bibles open. Look at Romans 9, starting in verse 2. For... I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites. 
And in them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. For them, for them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all and blessed forever. Amen. Now, I may have skipped a line, but don't worry. There's going to be a lot of lines skipped. Paul has sorrow for his own people. He wishes to be cursed. Well, wait a second. I thought he was just saying nothing can separate us from the love of God. I thought that was all together, right? We're, we're all in this together. And this is exactly what he's wanting to look at. The exception. The exception of what happens to God's people, his chosen people, when they act faithlessly. Now, that might sound like just a personal problem for Paul to you. Paul's a Jew. Maybe he's concerned about his fellow Jews. You know, what's going to happen to them? They're not believing like I am. This is more than a personal problem for Paul. It's a theological problem because it's a problem for God. What is God supposed to do with his faithful with his people, that he has chosen to be his people when they act faithlessly. So, I'm bringing you back to your box. Do you remember which one you checked? Jew or Gentile? Now, it might just seem like this is an irrelevant question to wonder what God is going to do when his people are not faithless. It's kind of boring because we don't face this, right? Because we checked a particular box. Am I right about that? You feel like, okay, well, that's somebody else's problem. It's not mine. Because this never happens, right? People outside the Christian faith never say, why do those Christians act like that? That doesn't ever happen. No one ever says anything like, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I sure can't stand his people. I mean, that's never been said in the history of the world. I have no problem with Christ, but I have a lot of problems with Christianity. Now, I'm being extra sarcastic, right? How often do we have that? How often do we as Christians say that? I, I have no problem with Jesus. I just have a problem with all of his people. Well, let me just say, our problem ag again is, I don't feel like I've got my life together. I don't feel like I belong. And or... I look at other people and I think, you know, they don't really belong. They don't have their life together. They shouldn't be a part of this. Because if we're people who believe that Jesus is the Christ, we sometimes have these questions. Have you looked at other people and said, yeah, I know they said they're Christian, but did you see what they posted on Instagram or Facebook? I know they said that they're Christian, but did you see what they said in that meeting or that business deal that they did? And so we look at them and we say, are they really in this? Do they really belong? And that's our problem. And we get a little bit confused and we wonder what we're supposed to do. Well, I want to just say as an aside, folks, if we look at Christians and we look at Christianity and we say, ah, I like Jesus, but I don't really like Jesus' people, then we are not loving like Jesus loved. If we're able to say that with a straight face and say, well, I like Christ, but I don't like Christianity, then we're not loving the way Christ loved the church. I want to take that further. We're going to look at three sections. We're going to look at these three chapters. Hopefully I'll do it in a way that will make sense. 
But in chapter 9 that we've already been looking at, Paul has this great sorrow. He's, confused, he's concerned about his people. And in chapter 9, among the many things that he says is he quotes Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. And he points to God's together story plan. Where unbelief of God's people has not become a new problem, it's always been the problem, right? And in Hosea 1.10, he points out that these people that were called not my people by God are my people. God's not new to this game of dealing with unfaithful people. He's dealt with them all along. That's the first chapter. We've done chapter 9. Chapter 10. Want to look at it. And look at a few verses here. Because it lays out something that you probably want to hang on to. It's probably what you most love about these chapters. Look in verse 3 of chapter 10. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul's intention is for all to come to understand their faith in Christ and to understand that the righteousness that they have actually comes from God. It's a gift from God. Look down in verse 9. This is the one that you will really remember and really love. Verse 9. Where is it? Oh yeah. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and is so justified. One confesses with the mouth and is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here we get the path. The path that you're familiar with. It's a path of faith in Christ. We confess that Jesus is Lord, and we acknowledge our belief, our trust, that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that he can live in us through Jesus. It's very familiar to us. It's the path that's laid out. Paul has told us, this might seem new, because it is, it's new in what God has done in Jesus, but it's been happening all along. Whenever God looked at Abraham, Abraham's faith was reckoned to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. So even Abraham, before the law, comes to God through faith. This may seem like a new thing, but it's actually the old thing. Where our salvation, do you remember what that word means? Salvation means deliverance, or healing, or rescue or to be put in proper relationship with God. All of that comes as we surrender to God in faith. How's everybody doing so far? Good? Because we just finished two chapters. You feeling good about yourself? Yes, just give a little pat on the back. You're making it good. Because now we get to the most controversial, the most expansive look that Paul gives at salvation. It's one that people still today wrestle with. Don't worry, I'm not even going to be able to give you a full answer on it, because that's an answer that belongs to God. But if you look in Romans chapter 11, you find that God answers this question that was asked way back when. Remember that question? What's God going to do with the Jews? 
What's God going to do with His people when they are faithless, when they are unfaithful? What is God going to do? And in the very first verse, what are we told? I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. You can even drop down to verse 11. He says it again. And so I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? Like, fall from grace? By no means. Through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles, Gentiles so as to make all Israel jealous. Now, if the stumbling means riches for the world, and if their defeat means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Whoa. The answer to this question of has God distanced himself from his people when they're unfaithful is no. And he gives three answers that I'm not going to go into any detail, but I'll give you the verses so you can look at it later. This rejection, this separation from Israel is partial. Verses 1 through 10. It's partial. There are elect. There are those that have hardened themselves against God. And the big issue are those people, right, that have said, no, I really don't want anything to do with you, God. And in verse 6, we learn that God has and tends to save all people by his grace. So it's partial. It's also temporary. Verses 11 through 27. We read one of these verses already. Israel stumbled because God put a block in their path. What kind of a parent does that? Well, evidently God does. God puts a stumbling block in their path so they would fall to bring the Gentiles in. One of the amazing little verses, there's so many in here that I can't cover them all. But in verse 16, he makes this reference that whenever you make a batch of bread and you consecrate the first fruits of that bread, you give a bit of it to God. That little bit that you give away makes the whole batch holy. The intent is for the holiness of all through a small group. Finally, the third reason, it's partial, it's temporal, and it has a very deep purpose from verses 28 to 26. This hardening has come upon the Jews so that the full number of Gentiles can come in. And what we do, all of us, is in verse 22, you can mark that one, we're to continue in the kindness that God has shown to all. Pat yourself on the back, we just got through chapter 11. Kind of. So the conclusion, the answer, the one that Paul gives is that God uses our disobedience as a path to show forgiveness to all. He hasn't revoked his grace. He hasn't taken away the promises that he's given to Israel. That question that he asked way back in chapter 9, verse 6, is one that he answers in chapter 11, verse 30. Disobedience is God's avenue to show mercy towards all. In fact, look at verse 32 of chapter 11. This one might catch you sideways like it always does for me, surprisingly. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Is that really in there? Is that true? It's an amazing tribute to the, to the mercy of God. 
The whole point of this in chapter 11, the whole point of dropping a stumbling block in front of Israel, the whole point even of an olive tree image to talk about Israel being grafted in and broken off, or Gentiles being grafted in, is so that none of us can boast. We stand on this podium, a podium of Jew and Gentile, and we think that we might have privilege over one another, and we, we don't. We suffer from the same human condition, which is sin. And so there's no real easy answer about the questions that people always want to know. Is God going to save all of Israel, or is God... Uh, going to uh, take care of those who've rejected this path of faith to, to come to the righteousness of God. That's God's to decide. I don't choose to jump into that land. But what I can jump into, what I can say, is what Paul says, that he provides an offering to his people, an offering to all people, that the righteousness of God is available to all. And that path, that avenue that we can get onto is one that is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, that he has provided this path for us. It's a clear path. So we can look at ourselves, and this is the part that may make the most sense and may, may apply to us the best. Can we look at ourselves and say, do I have it together? Am I included? Do I belong? The answer is, you are included. You belong. God is welcoming you in. Don't refuse. Come in. It's a matter of simple faith and trusting in what God has done to use the disobedience of all to bring us to faith. God's brought the world together, so of course he wants to bring you into that. And there's another part of it. There's a sense since God has put the world together, since God has put you together, the sense is that we need to begin to see the world as together in Christ. To assume that those that we tend to separate ourselves from, because of whatever reason, whether we're better than them or we don't think they're good enough or we don't think we're good enough, these people that we separate ourselves from, we are to see as together people those that God was willing to work through disobedience to bring in. And so that pushes this far beyond personal salvation. Because a lot of times, that's what happens in Romans with preachers. From the Reformation on, we want to make this about your salvation and your relationship between you and God. And that's true, but that's not the whole story. Because this is a together story. Can we say the word together? Together. This is about corporate salvation. All of us together beginning to see ourselves as part of another group of people. So while it's about personal salvation, it's about corporate salvation. All right, I'm going to fire one more set of things at you. I don't know if you're a note taker or not, but this will help you get where we've gone. It's like we're looking at the table of contents at the end. Chapter 8 Nothing separates us from the love of God. In fact, together we're more than conquerors through Him. That's the first one. Second, Paul was willing to condemn himself, to be accused, to be like the Messiah, to welcome in his people. He didn't need to do that because God has already included them. Number three, the righteousness of God is, is about 
not some righteousness that you establish for yourself, but submitting yourself to the righteousness of God. Four, the path. The path that we're on, this avenue that we're traveling, is a path of confessing that Jesus is Lord. Can we say that together? Jesus is Lord. And believing that God raised him from the dead. That path in Romans 10, 9 is laid out for all of us. Five, has God rejected his people? Does God reject unbelieving folks like the Jews? No. He intends to make them jealous, to cause them to stumble, to pull them closer together to him. Six, what becomes of any boasting in this kind of a setup? <laughs> there isn't any need for it. It's silly, unless we can boast in God. Because God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so that he can show mercy to all. Seven, and this might be the part that we need to spend a lot of time in. It's Romans 11, 33 through the end of the chapter. Flat out worship. Because Paul, while he doesn't fully give us all the answers that we want, he's given us the answer that we need. Come to faith in Christ and access the righteousness of God. He's given us what we need, but he just reaches out to God in worship. From God and through God and to God are all things. God's gathering them all up. There are many implications for a story like this. A together story where God's calling us together in Christ. I guess it shouldn't surprise us because of how God operates. It's how he's operated as a creator, how he's operated in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. God, as a trinity, works together. And our mission is to proclaim this good news message to everyone. To let other people know that they can be in on this together life. And following Jesus means following this God who has made us, full of the Holy Spirit, entering into this life. It's, it's a series, like, where we go next? Chapter 12 is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, right? That's what it's about. We offer ourselves the way Paul was trying to offer himself for the Jews, the way Jesus represented us to God and offered himself to us. I think what makes this story so exciting to me is two stories. Paul, actually Saul. Do you remember this? He had a first name. His first name was Saul. He knew about being right. He knew about having all the answers. He knew about being God's person. He was willing to kill and persecute until blinded by the light of Jesus Christ. And oh, if it ever was more appropriate, this is the time. Oh my God. Oh my Lord. What is the world like now? And that blindness causes him to reevaluate his life, to reevaluate his theology, and to begin to see that God had in mind all people together from the beginning. Paul is not just speaking to this from book knowledge. He's speaking to it from lordship knowledge. Then there's this guy, Jesus. I mean, you probably were bored today. I probably could have just given you this story from Jesus. He's so brilliant. 
he tells this one story about two people. A guy who wanted all the money, wished his father were dead, asked for the inheritance, said okay. He goes and blows the inheritance, abandons his family, loses his entire life, finally decides to scrape back to his family and beg to be a servant. And the dad says, okay. Well, there's this other person, one that stayed, one that served, one that was faithful. It's like, what's this all about? And God, in the closing of that story, says, hey, I, you're in. I welcome you. I would kill the fatted calf for you anytime. But this is a family. We're together. Is not Jesus brilliant to help us begin to see Jews and Gentiles, even while he's trying to reach both of them, pleading? Jesus, like Paul, kicks the podium out from under us and says, look, unfaithfulness, disobedience, that's where we're all standing. But we're invited into this life, a life together with God, a life that's made possible by God. Doesn't that make you want to do more, to love more, to worship more? It does for me. Let's pray. Oh God, we cannot know your mind. You're beyond what we can grasp. And so we just worship you and we thank you for what you've done through Jesus. We thank you that you're present in this world through the Holy Spirit. And we say with firm conviction that from you and through you and to you, O oh God, are all things. We pray this through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.